Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the 343 Podcast, where we tirelessly work to elevate the level of discourse and practitionership here in American soccer. I'm your host, Gary Kleiben, and today I'm joined by Division I college coach, Carlos Aguilar. I first met Carlos when he was a player for UC Irvine around 2008 and 2009, so way back in the day, guys. He then went on to play some professional soccer for a bit before transitioning into coaching at the college level. And as you certainly know, coaching isn't exactly the same at every level. Yes, it's the same sport, but coaching the U.S. men's national team isn't the same as coaching, say, the Argentine national team. And coaching U14 recreational soccer isn't the same thing as coaching a U14 academy team trying to develop professional players. Assuming, of course, that proper work is being done. Because Lord knows we have coaches with rec soccer skill sets entrusted with academy teams and players, and national team coaches who should be nowhere near national teams. From youth to pro to national teams, there's an entire spectrum of deferring skill sets involved to do the job and do it well. Then again, there is a lot of overlap also. So let's be clear. Just because someone has been operating in one part of the spectrum doesn't mean they can't operate in another. In any case, Today, we're going to jump into the domain of college soccer here in the States. Specifically, we're going to focus on the identifying, scouting, and recruiting process, and the rules that currently exist there. All right, I hope you enjoy the episode, but if you're a coach or a soccer parent, please, please take a moment to hear what sponsors this episode, as those products would directly benefit your coaching or your kid's trajectory in this maze of a system we have here in the States. And if you're a general fan of the podcast, freaking awesome. Your support is a way to bring about the soccer world you'd like to see in this country. But until we have 343 merch you can sport, please simply go ahead and give us a five-star rating along with a fantastic comment. That simple gesture really does go a long way. Here we go. And now, a quick few second mentions on what sponsors this episode. It's the best way to support the podcast, but more important, greatly improve your current soccer situation. First, if you're a coach, you've got to check out 343coaching.com. There are both free and premium programs for you there. The premium program in particular gives you full access to watch and listen to players, teams, and coaches in the real-life training environment. Now, what I mean by that is that the film and audio are not staged or scripted, such as what you would get at a conference or a typical course or video online. No, no, no. You get to be a legit fly on the wall and steady Brian, who basically helped pioneer a seismic shift in American soccer on how to develop youth players at every level. Among the many now professional players who were under his direct tutelage across many teams, one team in particular, which he started at U10 and led through U19, really stands out. Over a handful of players on that team became professionals. It's incredible work. And the actual training of that team and those players is what you get to use to catapult your coaching. Okay, second, let's say you're not a coach, but you're a parent of a youth player looking for how to best put them on a proper path. The solution for you guys is at 343masterclass.com. And third, if you'd consider going to a private school for academics, either here in the States or in Europe, that also has an integrated soccer program, you should check out acceleratorschool.com. 
critically important, the solutions for coaches, for parents, and for players are offered from people who have actually done the work and have an unprecedented track record in the United States. All right. I hope you enjoy this episode. We're just scratching the surface here, folks, but it's an important starting point for us to further expand down the line. Let's try to tackle the player ID scouting, recruiting process with keeping in mind what it is that you do specifically, and then also keeping in mind maybe tips and tricks for families. Mm -hmm. But if you don't mind a brief little intro from yourself, give us the Carlos Aguilar 101. Carlos Aguilar gets born and now all of a sudden he's a D1 college coach. And then we transition into how you go ahead and ID players and recruit players. Yeah. So obviously Carlos Aguilar's San Diego State assistant coach currently in the Pac-12. My coaching career began obviously after I retired playing, which was a short playing sneak, but I got to play, you know, at the junior college level, transferred to UC Irvine. And then um, from there, got into playing in the professional ranks with Rochester Rhinos. And then after that, kind of fell into coaching right away to finish my education with Irvine and George Coons and his staff. Um, when he made the jump to Cal State Fullerton, I, I was fortunate enough to make the jump with him. And then was with him from 2008 to, I would say, 2014 as a player and a coach around George Coons. Yeah, and then from there, obviously, took an opportunity to make the jump to San Diego State. And fast forward now, I'm here going on year three. And yeah, it's a difficult transition in the beginning just because, you know, I moved here and maybe a week or a week and a half, the pandemic hit. So that's a little bit of my 101, Gary, and then we can just kind of jump right into it. Perfect. Before we actually jump into the topic of the day, because I'm a curious <laughs> motherfucker um, <laughs> and I love Genesis stories, you know, how did you get yeah. to where you are? Maybe just one question you can address for us is what made you want to be a coach? Honestly, Gary, that's a very interesting question. I asked myself, my younger self in the beginning, if you ask that to myself, it's like, okay, well, I'm coming back to school, finish my education since I left early without a degree to play at Rochester. So yeah, I was just like, all right, well, I'll finish my education. I was a criminology law and society major. So usually to get hired for those positions, it's between a year, three years, you know, the whole process, background, academy, you know, multiple testing and, and so forth. And then from there, it's like, okay, well, I got a phone call from George Kuntz. Uh, I was actually speaking with uh, Chris Volk the other day, and he said it was Benoit who was going to take the position, but his visa didn't clear. So then they called me, and then that's kind of how I stepped into it. Just out of the blue, asked me if I wanted to volunteer and be a coach for the program. And he needed me the next morning at like 6 a.m. for training for preseason. Obviously, my role is to move into the dorms and then make sure all these guys are behaving and kind of staying putting preparing for preseason and then for me it was that's kind of how it just transitioned you know got into it right away and then i realized okay i'm gonna do this i can do this for one two three years by the time i get my job with my degree i'm out fast forward to those three years when george Kuntz actually is perfect timing george Kuntz had left the same week i had a job offer from cal state fullerton to be an, an assistant coach i had a, a few positions with my major which were you know, U.S. Customs, probation, a lot of really good jobs with high paying salaries compared to the $20,000 salary at Cal State Fullerton, which was part-time at the time, which that's how I just kind of fell in love with it. And then, yeah, man, it's kind of made me feel the same feelings as a player. And 
yeah, it was like, I think this is what I wanted to do and, you know, impact kids on and off the field and kind of preparing for life after college. Right. Got it. No, perfect, man. So it wasn't a, a premeditated thing. It wasn't like, hmm, man, I like soccer. Now I'm not playing anymore. I kind of want to coach. And you're like, I, I'm going to apply to different coaching jobs. It was nothing like that. It was basically George Coots, as you mentioned, he was your former coach in college at UC Irvine, who out of the blue, kind of, and to put it simply, gave you a ring. Hey, we need some help. You know, you want to come over and yeah. help your squad over there, whatever. And you're like, okay, sure. Fuck it. I guess I'll go and help you out. And then, you know, one thing <laughs> led to another and here you are. How many years ago was that? And what age were you then? That was 2011. So I was about 22, 23. Yeah. Around there. Got it. No, because some people, mm -hmm. you know how it is. Some people who are coaching, they have the aspiration to maybe be a college coach or an academy yeah. coach or whatever coaching level that they're thinking about as an ambition or, or as a stepping stone or as a milestone. And they have maybe these elaborate plans, which is great to have a plan and work towards that plan. But sometimes serendipity strikes and yeah. it falls from the sky just because of your history and, your, and the network that you've already established. And it sounds like that's what happened with you. Okay. So Carlos, brilliant, brilliant intro. Let's maybe transition into the topic of the day, which I think will be very helpful for both coaches and families in the sense that there's something in common between the two. And that is with respect to player identification, right? Well, mm -hmm. scout, right? And yeah. when you're scouting, I presume, I mean, at least that's how we do it, that you already have an idea in your head of what player profile you're interested in. So you go out and scout, right? We're going to dive into a little bit about what does that even mean to go scout? How long is the process? Once you maybe narrow down your scouting to a handful of targets, maybe if you rank your targets, I don't know how you do it. That's what we're going to get into. And then how you pursue those targets. How long does the pursuit take? The whole recruiting process. Yeah. How do you court them? How do you wine and dine them? And eventually, maybe we'll dive a little bit into the rules of college soccer because it's a little bit different. You know, you have yeah. restriction with respect to how you can do these things, when you can do these things, and how much of these things can you actually do. You know, that's a lot to unpack there. I'll try to guide you a little bit as we go along uh -huh. with some questions or something. But maybe it's a good starting point is, okay, here I am. I'm Carlos Aguilar. I need to go get some players for our program for the next season, for two seasons from now, for three seasons from now. So maybe start us out at the very beginning with respect to this question. Do you have a player profile in mind when you're looking for a center mid, an outside back, a winger or a striker? Do you have a model in your mind as to what you like or what you don't like, or because this is a misconception, or do you not have a model? And it's like, oh, I'm just looking for the best player. Cause sometimes people think just find the best player for each of those positions. Yeah. And there's different philosophies, right? Because maybe my philosophy is like, well, I don't even know what that means. Just get the best player for that position because it depends on what you want. You feel me? So for example, mm -hmm. maybe for an eight. Somebody's idea of a best player is just Weston McKinney, you know, a guy who can battle, win 50-50 duels, has a certain sort of physique, can win aerial balls. 
And maybe somebody else's notion of an eight is not that. Maybe it's Tony Cruz, you know? So mm. the best player for the position is relative to who's watching. So I'll shut up there. I'll let you dive in a little bit as to how you view that question. You know, do you have a model of a player in mind or no? It's completely open season, wild west, and you're just out there seeing what catches your eye. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting question, Gary. I can touch upon both parts, but yeah, I'll dive right into it. The first and foremost is obviously your system of play and kind of what are you looking at? You know, what do you want your program to play? Kind of your system of play. So with that in mind, then it comes in the positional player profiles for each individual role, which you just touched upon, right? So what characteristics you're looking for these positions for each individual position. And then that's how you start narrowing down, okay, which players fit into this system and fit into the characteristics of our system of play and how we want to play. I think my younger self, when I was young into the coaching room, I would be like, I want the best player, right? Whatever the best player is, that's the player I want. I can make it work. I think as I grew older and developed more as a coach and kind of, I guess you can say you got more season or more experience, I think it's, you know, it's a little bit of both, right? So it's a little bit of how can you find the best player in this role, in this position, but also how can you find certain characteristics that you don't have on your team right now? So whether that be a balance of a, if you play with maybe dual sixes or, or dual eights, or, or maybe it's a, can I have a Cruz and can I have a Weston McKinney, right? So. I think a lot of that kind of ties into it, into that recruiting aspect. But yeah, I think most importantly is just your system of play and how you want to play and what attributes these individuals have within your system of play. God, it makes total sense. So if you're four, four, three, three, four, four, two, four, two, three, mm -hmm. one, right. Just for, just in case we might have somebody listening, who's not exactly sure what you mean by system. Uh, yeah. It's system and style of play, right. It, yeah. it's maybe, yeah. maybe you care about a little bit more defensively oriented bunker encounter. Maybe you want to be a full on possession based team a la Manchester city sort of thing or somewhere in between. So no, brilliant. So, okay, cool. So you kind of have a model in your mind. And so maybe now take us through great armed with that vision. You have to go out and find players, maybe take us, you know, step-by-step step, there's no rush here. What is step one? And then step two and then step three and then step four and then step five is awesome he signed a letter of intent that's kind of like the end, end story so what's the very beginning carlos i think the very beginning is number one is identifying players right that can potentially fit your institution that fit your maybe not even institution or whatever it may be that fit your team i think number one is Obviously, as you know, and soccer is a small world and you have a lot of connections in regards to colleagues, you know, that you played with or coaching in Southern California or just all over the States, right? So yeah, number one is identifying these players, reaching out to your contacts, whatever club or whatever academy or whatever it may be that they're coaching and try to get some information from them, kind of what players they identify, they can see a transition to the college game. Or are they going to transition to be a pro right away? Or if they need college to transition to, to the next level. And then from there is, you know, identifying all these players. Also sometimes too, it's just you going out there and, and watching as much as you can, right? On a weekend or whether that be a tournament, Generation Adidas, you know, MLS next, you know, there, there's so many leagues now, so many events now that you can find it. You can find games on the weekends everywhere. So it's just, where are you more likely going to find a player that's going to fit as well as obviously with your leads, you go follow up with those leads, you go watch them, you identify, you watch, okay. Then you get on the phone again, 
you call back to the coach and be like, hey, this is what I thought. What do you think? And then if it's a fit, then obviously you reach out to the player, right? There's rules within the NCAA. If they're within the graduating years that you can reach out to them, you can reach out to them, get contact information and start beginning the recruiting process. Let me interject right there real quick. Mm -hmm. uh, and to recap, so you reach out maybe to your network of club coaches, youth club coaches, and mm -hmm. hey, what do you guys got? You know, and they yeah. say, oh, hey, you got to go come check out my outside back. Um, fantastic player. He'll do well for you. And then you maybe make a list of all that. And I'm trying to get into the nitty gritty here. Do you write down that list in an Excel spreadsheet that you keep to yourself that the whole staff kind of shares together, or is it more just maybe in your coaching notebook or ju maybe just in your phone? Like I'm thinking about process. So that's question mm -hmm. one. Yeah. Actually, you can probably just answer that right now in, in one or two sentences and then before. Yeah, I no, for sure. I think I've been through all the rounds, whether it be a booklet, whether it be Excel, whether it be this or that. So. I think for me, what works best now is I have an Excel spreadsheet of all the clubs and then I write down the kid's name, their information, everything. And then every tournament I would go to or just regular matches, I have that information with me on a drive or in a cloud. So then, hey, I'm watching, you know, LA Galaxy. Uh, all right, the schematics. Now it's kind of evolved a little bit with modular with EMLS Next teams. They have a website where you can get the schematic for whoever's the starting 11 and the reserves. So that helps a lot. And then kind of that's how you can identify with it. And then you create, get the names and then obviously you reach out to these coaches and they can I get your contact information. Got but. it. So you mentioned, I'm sorry to interrupt. You mentioned MLS next and, mm -hmm. and I'm thinking out loud here again for both of our audiences here, coaches and you know, the pr practitioners and the families alike and be real, Carlos, be real because you only have a certain amount of time to go out and do this job. You have so many other responsibilities. Do you just focus on the high-end tournaments, the high-end leagues where supposedly most if you know, most of all the talent has already been funneled there. And I know there's tons of talent. You know this too. There's tons yeah. of talent, even better talent that's not even in these leagues. But again, I'm being realistic, right? You only yeah. have a certain amount of time. Do you just focus on those high-end sort of things? Uh, or do you spread it out? And if you spread it out and it, there's no shame in either one, and just give us the real answer, Carlos. Is it 90% the high-end leagues and maybe 10%, maybe, okay, I'll go to Santa Ana and check out this, you know, Mexican league or coast soccer league, or I don't even know all the leagues that exist now, but you get my question. Yeah, I get your question. I think for me, I think it's, you know, how can I be the most efficient for my job with recruiting, right? So whether if it's an MLS next event, whether we have Surf Cup coming up this weekend, many other tournaments. So the, the most games I can see in a day or two or three days, that's probably the best for me in a sense, just because I can get out there and watch as much games and players that I can see, right? As you know, we have other job responsibilities as well. Apart from that, it's family, it's, you know, it's yourself as well, right? But at the same time too, sometimes you may not find players there and you got to go, well, I got to go somewhere else and look for other players. So then that's when obviously like high school, junior college, so many other leagues that play your regular Mexican leagues on the weekends and all that kind of tie into that. So I think a lot of it goes into what we touched upon, obviously recruiting and a specific player profile that you need for that position and where can you go find it? Obviously you got to turn every stone. So, I mean, that's my philosophy. I like to go. So as many games, it doesn't matter what league it is to try to find that player that best suits our team.
You got it. But it is like 80% the big leagues, maybe 20% the other stuff. Yeah. And to touch upon that, it's not that I don't want to like emphasize it's like a big league or a lower league. It's just in a sense, it's like, obviously there is, it doesn't make sense for me just to go say like one game at a time when I can go to a, I see. a venue. It's, yeah. It's a venue and what? It's the event. That's yeah, the event. Yeah. Events. Events versus just a league game, you know, somewhere, yeah. some city. I got you. No, it makes sense, man. Okay. So cool. So. You've got this list of players from your network. You're out there on the field at these events. You're checking, you're following up on that list that you already have. And I imagine you're also kind of keeping an eye out for players that probably are not on your list. Yes. Maybe you can give us a feel, a sense for how often does that happen where you're like, oh, who's this player that really catches your eye? He wasn't even on your radar screen. And how often does that happen? How often does it happen that that particular player or a player like that ends up in your program? No, I think that's a really good question. I think, yeah, I think it happens more often than what you think, to be honest, because sometimes I like to go with an open mind of, you know, hey, obviously I'm going to watch this player, but at the same time, there's going to be other players there to evaluate too. So I think um, just trying not to be biased to, I guess, a certain specific player. I want to have that mindset where it's like, okay, hey, you know, there's going to be guys out there as well. Check everybody out, you know? And yeah, I think a lot of times, yeah, I go watch sometimes a specific player and sometimes another player intrigues me more than this player. And so and that happens as well. Sometimes I would just be like, Hey, I like this kid. He impressed me this game. Um, write him down, keep him in my notebook, keep him in my Excel sheet. Okay. And like track them. Let me watch him a few more times, see what it is, you know? And, and if not, if I'm not able to watch him a few more times, I'm, I'll reach out to the coach and I'll be like, Hey, can you send me the full match? And then from there, it's when I'll watch the whole match, but I'll clip the players, every touches, whether it be a positive or a negative action. And then I'll share with the staff and let me know your thoughts. Got so it. now it's, now we're kind of getting to the details, right? How, okay, is, can he do it? Can he not? What can he improve on? What does he do really well? And so forth. And then, so now not only did I watch that match live, but I was able to clip his clips and then now I'm able to get a better sense of who he is as a player. And then once I watch him more, obviously those phone calls is personality, character, and how he is too. So got it. So all of that homework happens before reaching out to the player or does sometimes do you reach out to the player right away and then maybe do some of the homework? Is it a mixture? Yeah. yeah I think, I think it's just in the flow of things. I think a lot of it too, is like, ah, okay, like, should I reach out? Uh, maybe not. Maybe let me do these clips before I reach out and so forth. So it's just. It's both at the time. It just depends, you know? Got it. Got it. Okay. So maybe now let's transition into that phase of you're reaching out to a player. You're making first contact. Maybe first let us know a bit about the rules associated with that uh, specifically. And after you give an overview of the rules, how does that first contact work? Is it on the phone? Is it in person? Is it on the field? Is it with just the player? Is it with the parents and not the player? Is it both of them? So rules first, and then take us through the experience of first contact. Yeah. So I think, well, you uh, bringing up the rules is important, Gary. I think it's important for these players and these parents to be educated on the rules. When can coaches contact or reach out to them specifically in, in regards to the recruiting process, right? So usually it's June 15th of a sophomore that you can reach out to them. And that's the first day of contact where you can call, whether that be text, email, or phone call specifically for me, going back into the recruiting side of things, Gary, with these things, it's like, all right, not, not only am I recruiting for the year, but I'm recruiting for two, three years out. So I'm watching 
22s, 23s, and 24s. Those are grad years, right? And potentially 2025s while I'm recruiting in these events, right? So then, hey, if I'm seeing these players, then obviously my list just gets funneled per year. So that from there, June 15th comes, I have my list. I call my guys. Just an introduction, get to know them. Um, as you know, Gary, in, in our sport, from their sophomore year to the senior year, a lot of things can happen development-wise. So it's, you know, just identifying them, keep tracking of them, uh, watching them at these events, watching them in league games. And then from there, it's building our relationship throughout the process. And I don't want to give too many secrets, but, you know, there, there is some secret. I'm, I'm just messing with you. But no, obviously player development, get to know them as, as players, get to know their coaches, get to know people outside around who are their circle, their social media, and so forth. And these are good opportunities to know how self-aware they are to within themselves on and off the field. Yeah, because obviously you're recruiting for college and it's an academic yeah. institution. So mm -hmm. how important are academics? I know every institution has different requirements, things of that mm -hmm. nature, but I'm not, not looking at it from an angle of, of the requirements. Uh, I'm more looking at it from an angle of, have you seen a correlation of success on the field for your programs and academics? Meaning if they're good at academics, they're good on the field. If they're bad at academics, they're bad on the field. I'm wondering if there is some correlation yeah. there, if there's no correlation, if it's all over the place and in the process of recruiting, which is what we're discussing, how much do you care about that? I think it's very important. I think that's a valuable lesson in regards to me growing as a coach, as a recruiter too, is how the academics are important because, you know, you look at it as like, if they're able to take care of their academics, they're able to take care of the, the situations, the things that we ask of them on the field. I think there's a good correlation with that. I think a lot of it too, if they're organized, you know, they stay on top of it. It just makes it easier for them. So then they can transition into the college game. As you know, it's very rigorous with academics and, and the game, right? We play every 3.3 days. So it's tough. And then, so yeah, while they're training and so forth and on trips, a lot of them being on top of their academics is important because they're not stressing while they're in training. Oh, I have a paper due or I have this, you know, and if, if in that recruiting process, I did identify that, you know, they're able to take care of their academics and their transcript show for it. And then it's, it. a, it's a plus, you know, I think it's important that they take care of uh, their academics. It's like a signal of responsibility, commitment, yeah. discipline, all those sorts of things. So if they have their sure. in order in their high school years, like they're a good student, that kind of is a signal that they have structure behind exactly. them. And they come mm -hmm. over there. And if they, you have structure, then you can organize your life in such a way. So as if it's organized off the field, it'll be fine on the field. If you're a mm -hmm. disaster off the field, then your life is chaos. You have less structure and that impacts on the field. So it's good to hear from you, Carlos, obviously, you know what I do at this point too, happens at the pro game as well. You know, if you're a mess off the field, you're probably a mess on it. Careers are short-lived if you're a disaster off the field. I'm just being frank here. So figure that's what it was, but I never heard it from a college coach's perspective that they've seen that sort yeah. of correlation. And there's also, Gary, there's also kids that don't have, like maybe our first gen or, you know, they don't have the resources as many as others. And you're able to understand those situations and those are different than from, you know, totally. other situations. Right. So yeah, I just got to acknowledge that. And then how can, you know, help them make themselves aware and be like, Hey, look, this is how you do it. This is why. And so forth. Right? Totally. So you, you mentor those situations when they get there, like you don't completely exclude them. You're like, oh man, but this kid has so much potential. Let's, 
May yeah. we get everything in order for him, you know, guide him and mentor him the right way. And have you seen those stories, you personally, where they come in like that? Maybe they were a 2.0 student or something, and all of a sudden, hey, they got their shit together, and they had a successful sort of student-athlete college, maybe even a degree uh, at the end of it. Absolutely. I've seen it happen throughout my career. And at the end of the day, that is my goal. I'm, I'm in the college game because I want them to get an education. As you know, Gary, the pro game, after you retire from your pro game, you have 30, 40 years of life to live. So you might need something to do. Obviously you have your degree to do that and then kind of get you into the door to make a living for yourself or your family or whatever that may be. Right. So yeah, I think it's important to mentor these kids, even if they don't think that, even if I can't get them to my institution, but to help them to get elsewhere, to go to the junior college route, you know, Hey, I'm be like, Hey, your grades aren't the best. You need to go to junior college. This is the route for you. And then maybe you can transfer to a different institution. Got you. Know? So, well, since we're talking about academics, maybe I'll continue pulling on this thread a little bit. Every institution, every university has different requirements, minimum academic requirements. I guess my question is maybe you can share what those kind of look like from a GPA perspective or if SATs matter or don't matter <laughs> and, and what sort of flexibility exists because, you know, one of the carrots that is dangled over youth club soccer here in the States is obviously getting into college and potentially even getting some, if not all of your college paid for, which is a huge thing, especially nowadays with uh, all kinds of discussions over student debt, et cetera, et cetera. So from a financial perspective, it's an awesome opportunity if somehow that can be subsidized through athletics. So I guess my question first is maybe you can share a little bit of the academic requirements to get in the first place. And are those academic requirements different for a student athlete versus somebody who's not an athlete at all? So if, for instance, if I want to get into UCLA, I know that's very difficult to do, but you know, if I'm exceptional, remarkable as an athlete in some sort of sport, those academic requirements kind of get relaxed quite a bit, you know, mm -hmm. for, for me to get in. So maybe you can share a little bit about that specifically, maybe what are the numbers and what kind of flexibility exists as a result of being a student athlete? Yeah. I think being a student athlete obviously has a perch in regards to institutions, right? In a sense of, you know, some schools are able to admit students now, still, even now, and some schools aren't, you know, they have deadlines. So I think it just goes base to base on institution, what the requirements are, what, you know, sometimes it's the school requirements. Sometimes it's also the staff requirements of what they look for in each of these kids. Right. So, so for instance, SATs is a good one. Some are taking them. Some schools aren't taking them now. So it's important to do your research of what schools, once these individuals are narrowing down their schools, it's like, Hey, do you guys take SATs? Yes, no. And then, then that's how you can start making your broad selection of schools, narrowing it down to specific schools. So then obviously the GPA requirements kind of coincides with the NCAA. So there's this eligibility center that kind of, you know, that's where you send your transcripts, your test scores and so forth. And, and the NCAA regulates and just make sure that you're not taking just like PE, you know, you're taking the right classes. Usually the courses that correlate with those are the same ones that it takes to graduate, which would be like your, whether your math, your science, your English is and all that. Right. So, and on top of that, it's like some schools require visual performing arts courses. So that's a VPA, whether that be in like an art, some schools don't. So yeah, I think a lot of it, to, you know, to narrow it down, Gary, it comes down to each individual recruit doing their homework on these institutions and getting to know 
the NCAA rules with that. And then the scholarships kind of tie into that. I mean, the most, at Division One is 9.9 scholarships for men. Obviously, some schools may have less. What does that mean, 9.9? Can you so, educate us? They have 9.9 full scholarships. So, and some schools also, you, and you got to keep in mind, some schools also have rosters, limitations in a way where they, they, they have to carry 30, some can carry over, some have to carry less. So to think about putting 9.9 over a 30-man roster, so the money then most likely gets divided up so that everybody to, you know, have a team to compete and be competitive. And then to tie the scholarship aspect of it, there's certain ac- schools that have academic aid, there's certain schools that don't have academic aid, and then financial aid kind of comes into that piece too. So you can kind of tie in financial aid with loans or government aid, academic aid if that institution provides academic aid, and then scholarships. So those are the three main pieces that you can tie into, you know, your education, right? So it's, so, a, bu- so it's a budget. The 9.9 is a budget. So if you had, yeah. if you had 20 players, then pretty much every player, if you did it equally would get half a full ride. Yeah. I mean, that's a fair example. It's just, yeah, it would be spread out. Some may get some, some may not get some, some have the opportunity to, you know, parents have military background and their education's paid for. And then that they mentioned that to coaches, then I think that gives them another little boost in a sense. Cause it's like, Hey, I want to come here. I'm a good player. I don't need any aid money just because, you know, my parents were in the military. It's cover or some families just have the means to be able to pay for it too, right? So, which is fine. It's just being able to communicate that to the coaches and, and yeah. kind of put you, give you the best opportunity to get to an institution where you want to be. Right? And this, and this again, falls on your plate, your and your staff's plate to kind of use that as an instrument for recruiting. You know, if you really sure. have a target that, oh my God, I need to have this player on there. You look at your budget, your 9.9 budget, how much is spent already for next season, I'm presuming. And, yeah. and you go to war with that. You're like, oh, I'm going to offer this guy a full ride or I'm going to offer him almost a full ride. It's kind of an, a recruiting tool, correct? For sure. Yeah, yeah. So obviously then it's kind of like, you know, you figure out how much money you're willing to give and so forth. And then what are the positions you may need to fill in that year, but possibly year two, year three, year four. Mind you, some of these kids now it's, Soccer's grown so much in this country that some may just come for a semester, some may come for a year or two years and then go the pro route, right? So it's, you know, it's a constant thing of being on the recruiting side of things just so that you understand that you're not just trying to fill year one, it's year two, year three, and year four, the potential of what could happen, you know? And on those lines, the 9.9, let's say, let's say you offer a player something, let's say you offer, offer him a 50% sort of thing. Is that a commitment throughout all four years? You know, you're going to get 50% for all four years, or is that just you're committing 50% this first year, and then we'll reevaluate for year two, year three, year four. How does that work? Yeah, I think it's just, again, based on institution, each institution, some years have four-year contracts. And not, I wouldn't say four-year uh, contract, but it's like a span of four years. They'll have that scholarship from year to year. But they sign it year to year, these scholarships. But again, I've heard different things of, you know, some may get like, say, 10, 20, 30, uh, 50%. So that's just an example. It could be even more. It can be like maybe year one, none, year two, 30, year three, 70, and then year four, 100%. So 
Got it's it. just different, you know? So I think it varies between school and head coach and how things in regards to players. I imagine that's something that the family is made aware of up front. For, for, yeah. Correct. Yes, uh -huh, for sure. Yeah, it's, I think it's important to communicate to the families, right? So there's no miscommunication in regards to that. Perfect. And then I believe in August, you can give a formal, like a, a page of what explaining what it is, what they pay and so forth in regards to that. But mind you, these rules that I'm talking about may change within a couple of weeks, months and so forth. NCAA is looking to reconfigure some things with the rules. Obviously, um, that's way above my pay grade, but um, yeah, that's what I'm, we're being told. But yeah, potentially things may change in, in the near future. I want to come back to this June 15th of their sophomore year date, which is when you mm -hmm. are technically allowed to make first contact with a prospect. Do you know, or can you speculate a little bit as to like, why, why is it the sophomore year and not the freshman year or why, or why not the junior year? You know, like why yeah. that date? Why? To be honest, Gary, I'm not too sure, but I mean, if I can give you an answer, I think it would be just so like all schools are an even playing field, right? So I think you have like power five schools. I mean, you name the big schools, right? Everybody's in an even playing field. So everybody can reach out the same day and everything's regulated to Got fair. It. I think that would be my honest answer. I could be wrong. So people listening, don't butcher me for that. Got it. Got it. Okay. Cause I started speculating, I imagine that might be the reason, uh, but I also speculated there's, there could be other reasons like maturity of the player, maturity yeah, of the family. Too, old, maybe like talking to a 15 year old is different than talking to a 13 year old, Absolutely. Uh, you know, trying to manipulate a, a family when the kid is younger is probably easier than when the kid is older because the family has less experience or the kid has less experience, you know, I, I, all kinds of those sorts of things. I don't know if there's any truth to that. Just mm -hmm. really curious as to why that particular date. So it's two years ahead of when they basically be going to college. Yeah, correct. And that's for the first initial call. Like I know some prospects may not get that phone call on that day and, and it's nothing to feel bad about. It's just usually those are introduction calls and sometimes you haven't been seen enough by these coaches. So, I mean, you still have enough time to continue to develop and grow. I think we've all seen some kids you know, at that age are fantastic. But then as year two, year three, then, you know, everybody else catches up or some of these players surpass them. So it's important to continue to track them. Right. So, yeah, I think a lot of it is if you're a, if you're a student, if you're a potential student athlete that didn't get a phone call on that day, don't be discouraged. Just continue to work hard. And I'm sure as the years go on and you continue to develop, you'll get some eyes on you. Got it. I want you to lean on your personal experience, your personal sort of story here and not keep it too general, although you can, when you make first contact and then subsequent contact leading up to a commitment, maybe take us through that is first contact, maybe even just tell us a story without naming a name of a player or anything. It's like, how do you get their phone number, their contact info? Did you approach a family on the sidelines and just ask them for their contact info? And then did you make contact with the dad or the mom or was it the kid? So there's that. Is it a text? Is it a phone call? How long is the phone call? How many phone calls do you make? You know, is it just touching base with them every two or three months, every couple of weeks? Is it after you watch him play a game, you're like, hey, good game, Jackson, you did phenomenal, you know, keep it going. Like, what is the courtship process look like? You know, you're trying to attract a mate here. How do you, yeah. how do you 
and snare them in your net. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, I think first and foremost, I will never go and reach out, to go to the dad or mom. It depends what club it is, whether if it's an MLS academy or if it's just a club. I would always reach out to the coach and talk to the coach first and get his information and get his perspective on the player, how he is on the player. And then from there, obviously, I'll get the information. And then I reach out. I'll shoot him a text. I'm like, hey, I introduced myself, who I am, and where am I at? I'm obviously at San Diego State. And then, yeah, just kind of... Uh, the introduction and set up a phone call. And then from that phone call is, you know, just getting to know that individual. It's who they are as people on and off the field, you know, hobbies, siblings, parents. A lot of the questions, if you ask me, it's like trying to get those answers, right? Like, what do your parents do? You know, do you have siblings? Where do you go to high school? Just get as much as information as I can on the individual. And then from there, just continue to have phone calls with them and do player development activities with them throughout the recruiting process. And it, it, again, goes through whether I attend a training or attend games, um, contact. I, I try to get at least once a week, whether it be a, uh, a text, sometimes a, a phone call. So it's just constant communication with them. Games is obviously too as well when they get released from their team and so forth from there, trying to connect with them, be like, hey, let's jump on a call this week to talk about the games, get your perspective on it and see how much self-awareness they are with that. And yeah, and then from there, obviously you build that relationship. So by junior or senior year, he understands you, you understand him. And then obviously, I mean, you got a good connection, good feedback from the coach, from the parents and so forth. It's all it's very important. I mean, there's some times where parents will try to answer more than what they should be, which I think that kind of turns me off. And in a way, if I'm being completely honest, because at the end of the day is like, I want him to take initiative. This is the decision he needs to make. And again, but I also understand the parent perspective. I'm not a parent, so I get it from them and where that comes from. Give us an example, because that's a very important insight, Carlos. Yeah, well, so for example, like say we're in an interview, me and you, right? And I'm in like, or say we're in, uh, you're in a visit. Um, and then obviously you come to the office, you ask questions and the parents answering all the questions as opposed to the player, you know, mm, so got you. I mean, okay. that, that's an example. You preferably have want him to answer those questions. And then from there, a parent can jump in and, and there's both things. Obviously, uh, I don't think, uh, like in those conversations, sometimes a player will, will bring up the financial piece, but it's more for the parents and then they jump in and bring that, which is fine because yeah. uh, at the end of the day, it's, you know, they work, um, it's their son. So, or totally. daughter. So that's kind of how the process goes. And then once you get a commitment, then you continue to have those conversations with them. And then obviously just get them prepared. So when they come into to your program, they're ready. They know the expectations. They know what is expected of them as, as people on and off the field. And then we go from there, Gary, and then try to give them the best information, try to help them out in, in whatever way it may be on and off the field, whether it just be with life or it would just be with football too. So just give, be there for the, each individual. Last piece, Carlos, because we're reaching up on an hour here. I try to keep them to an hour is we're at the commitment stage. You've done all of this. And now how does commitment work? Because from an outsider's perspective, it looks like, oh, this player verbally committed to this university. And then there's a second component, which comes later. Maybe you can enlighten us how much later which is this the so-called so famous uh, national letter of intent sort of thing day where everybody's like, quote unquote, signing that they are going to attend this university. So tell us a little bit about when can they, per the rules, verbally commit, number one. How much does that really matter? And I understand your interest. Just be real with us. I understand your interest. Like the player should, I mean, 
your word should be gold, right? So if you give yeah. somebody your word, I mean, you need to stick by your word, okay? But yeah. maybe give us that sort of feeling like, I mean, it's just the verbal also at the same time. It's not a ring contract. And then transition maybe into the signing, the national letter yeah. of intent and what does that mean? For sure. And I think a lot of it comes into when that commitment's coming, you've done all that homework as people, as characters, you've done all your background, all that research and so forth. So yeah, when he does make a verbal commitment, that means he's verbally committing to coming to that institution. Obviously it's just the verbal per, I think the NCAA doesn't mean anything, but in a sense in our world is your word is, you know, the way I was raised, you were raised, I'm sure is your word means everything. Right. So, um, and then from there, once that happens, as they come through their senior year, they'll get their national letter of intent, which was moved up a little bit. I think it's November or October. Then you can sign your national letter of intent. And then that's kind of what your scholarship is and so forth at your attending at university. And you go from there. And that's kind of how the process works. And again, it's not just a month or two months. It's, uh, so it's for me, it's sometimes a year or more than a year or two years of communication with individuals, Got right? It. To know them collectively. The letter of intent is a, like a binding agreement. It has all, all the information, what the university is committing to you, what you're committing to yeah. the university. It actually is a binding sort of document, right? It's not just yeah, a court show sort of thing. No, no. It's like, it's a year to year thing where it's like you sign it, you're looking to go there as well. For, and then from there, yeah, it has all the, the numbers and everything. Yeah. The, the verbal also, is that also used as a signal so that other universities now are aware that, oh, can't talk to this player anymore because they committed to San Diego State, right? It's kind of like a gentleman's agreement that, that gets communi communicated across the universities, yes? Absolutely, yeah. And then obviously there's, I mean, you've seen top drawer soccer, a lot of them, they post all the commitments or it would be like on their social media, on their Twitter, Instagram. And a lot of it, yeah, it's that research of these individuals, you know, this is where they want to be. This is where they see themselves. And that chapter in their life is done. And now they can just kind of focus on, you know, continue playing and, and go for there and prepare if they're on the verge of being a pro, if not, obviously college and every situation is different for each player. But at that point, it is hands off for all other college coaches. Like this player is now off limits because they verbally committed. Is that a, tr is that a true statement or do some still attempt to maybe jack the player? Uh, no comment on that. Uh <laughs> <laughs> No, no, I'm just playing not for me, like, not for me. Like, obviously I have morals. So obviously for me, that's, I'm not, you know, I'm hands off that. Right. But obviously, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's, Got there it could be, but I mean, there could be potentially other, other institutions or coaches reaching out to them, even regardless if it's just a verbal agreement. Right. Got it. Got it. But I'm just trying to get to the heart of it. it is that whole point of a verbal agreement also for that reason, it's kind of like, again, a gentleman's agreement between the universities like hey it's kind of like hands off once the player verbally commits or does it have nothing to do with that at all no i think yeah i think for me i think that's a good explanation of things you know i think okay. yeah, it's an agreement and then yeah i mean i think if you committed a player and you worked so hard and i came in like it, i'm sure you wouldn't if anybody would come in and try to speak to him i think that you know i, I don't think that would fit it's well war. with you, right? It's war, baby. <laughs> yeah. All right. It, all right. For sure. Word, so, I'm coming after you motherfuckers next time too. <laughs> for sure. So now it's a gentleman. So obviously, you know, try to do things the right way. Um, and that's it, how I carry myself. Yeah. But you know what, bro, if, if Riquelme was somebody that I wanted and he verbally committed to you, I don't give a fuck. I'm coming after him anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well then at that point, I made you sure he's not talking to anybody. He's only talking to me, you know? 
I love it, Carlos. I love it. All mm -hmm. right, man. Brilliant. Thank you so much, dude. Um, I think this will be part one of two, if you don't mind mm -hmm. coming back on and maybe discussing a little bit more uh, coaching, you know. Uh, Absolutely. Coaching specific stuff, coaching specific stuff to the college game and just coaching specific stuff in general. Today's was more about this whole player ID, scouting, recruiting, getting a player to commit to your institution. What does that process look like from your perspective and from a family's perspective? Maybe this will be valuable to them too, to wrap their heads around the whole process. So thanks brother. I really appreciate it. Is there a place that people can get more information or follow you? Uh, as well. Are you on any social media channels? Um, do you want to give a shout out to, to your, I don't know, anything? Yeah, there is information. I think a lot of it's in the NCAA. Um, and then that kind of helps you in the eligibility center, it not only helps you for division one, but it helps you for division two II and three, um, as well. Obviously NIA is different entity and then junior college is different entity as well. So, um, yeah, I would, I would definitely contribute, um, making sure that the listeners stay informed to that and then educate themselves on it. And then obviously my, I think my Instagram and Twitter is the same. I think it's C Aguilar underscore 10, the number 10. Um, and that's for Instagram and, and Twitter. Brilliant, man. I put that in the show notes too. Thank you very mm -hmm. much, Carlos. Thank you, Gary. And then looking forward to catching up soon on, on the next topic and, you know, really enjoyed doing it. Well, that's it for today, guys. Thank you for listening. A reminder for coaches. You can get both the free and premium coaching programs at 343coaching.com. Don't let anyone tell you your teams can't win by playing dominant possession-based football while also developing individual players to the highest levels. Nonsense. We've proved it at every single level and so have hundreds of serious member coaches across the country. Now that we've moved on to the pro level, we're delivering everything we've learned in the program. Don't wait and continue delaying getting on a proven path. And parents, 343masterclass.com is where you want to go to get a working compass for navigating the American soccer landscape with your player. It's pretty bad out there, but let our experience guide you. And if you're interested in a solution that blends both academics and soccer, there's even the opportunity to do this in Europe as well. To learn more, visit acceleratorschool.com. Until next time, cheers everyone and keep building.